uh, everybody to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and try hard to stay awake. I want to thank uh, Ed and Lindsay for the good food. And thank them for thinking about me and all the gluten-free stuff. Appreciate that. I'm hoping I can stay awake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if I wake up and you're gone, I won't worry about it. All right, First Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, verse three. This is the Apostle Paul writing about 14 or 15 years before the uh, Gospels were written. And First Corinthians 15:3 says, "For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance." that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So Paul has appeared to probably around eight years after Jesus' resurrection. So this was not during the 40 days, this last appearance to the Apostle Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was killing Christians. You remember the story. You can read about it in the 9th and in the 22nd chapters of Acts. It's in there at least three times the story of Paul's conversion. I want you to see here that he appeared to James. Only Paul tells us this. We don't know this from the Gospels. But I'm glad he appeared to James. Then I wanted to go to the last part of the Gospel of John. I don't know how much reading you do in the Bible, but I recommend reading John to every new believer. Because John is the one who writes his book so that people may believe. He says many other things Jesus did and said which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe and have life in his name. So faith in Jesus is brought about by reading John's gospel. So new, new uh, Christians can read it, and then, you know, Christians who use the, the original languages of the Bible can read it and struggle with it and try to understand it. When I teach Greek, I always start with John because it's so simple. The vocabulary is repetitive and simple. But uh, John is definitely not simple. It's just that the wording is simple. Okay, I'm in, I'm in John chapter 20, but right before that, I want you to see that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took down the body of Jesus. Only John tells us this. Um, 
The other three, the Synoptic Gospels, tell us only of Joseph of Arimathea. But John tells us also about Nicodemus. Both of these guys were members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, uh, that had 70 men on it. Verse 38 of chapter 19 says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. And Nicodemus mentioned three times in John's Gospel. And as you read through John, you discover that Nicodemus is coming to faith also. Remember in John 3, he's the one that came to Jesus at night. And Jesus... Uh, teaches him about the, the new birth, which comes from above. Nicodemus was the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night, John says. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Now today, that would be thousands and thousands of dollars. So he brings the spices. Joseph of Arimathea brought the shroud. And they took Jesus' body, and you know, there would be no question. You take somebody down dead. You know, in the old days, uh, when someone died in a family, they would strip the body and wash the body. And all the family members would be involved in the washing of the body. When you wash someone who's dead, you know there's no question this person's dead. Uh, you don't expect him to come back, you know. And so Jesus here, he's taken down from the crucifixion. And uh, his body and the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb. So this, again, you know, Mickey, this gets back to your question. I believe that uh, he was laid in the tomb uh, in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, in which no one, a tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus' day uh, there. Now, day of preparation is Friday. Preparation for a big Sabbath. Uh, the high Sabbath, the highest Sabbath of the year is Passover. And so here's the man who had raised people from the dead, who had cast out demons. I was going to tell you one more demon story, and then I'm going to get back to this. Uh, one of my past students, who is a brilliant, amazing missionary in uh, Guatemala City, her name is Lori Nee. Uh, it was Lori Penny. Uh, you know her. She aced all my Greek and Hebrew classes. She's just brilliant. Didn't speak a word of Spanish, and they asked her if she would become the dean of women at Colegio Biblico, uh, where only Spanish is spoken. And so she did, and within six months she was fluent in Spanish. Uh, and then she became a missionary. She married a guy who came there whose name is Eugenio Ni. They call him Cano. 
uh, N-I-J is the last name. You know, it's not like knights that say ni, but it's, but it's, uh, it's, it's kind of like that. If any of you have seen Monty Python, you, ni, anyway, <laughs> but her name is, her name is ni, okay, Lori Ni. And uh, I got an email from her one morning, and she said that a woman had come into her Bible study the night before. She and her 11-year-old son had come in, and both of them were demon-possessed. And whenever the name of Jesus was mentioned, the woman would throw a fit and disrupt the Bible study. So she said after the Bible study, she and her husband separated her and her son from everybody else, went into a room with the elders, and began casting the demon out, demon out of the woman. She didn't know the name of the demon. She didn't know how many demons there were. But they worked on this demon, this demon-possessed woman, from nine at night to two in the morning. And the demon never came out, or however many there were. Uh, demons are so incredibly stubborn and rebellious. And so she wrote me and said, "What can I do?" She said, "I've heard." Snatches of Hebrew, Greek, uh, Aramaic, Spanish, English, and other languages I didn't recognize coming out of this, this, this woman. It turns out she was given to Satan by her mother, who was a, a witch. Her dad was a warlock. And she was given to Satan at her birth. And so she had been possessed by demons from birth. And so I wrote back to Laura. She said, what should I do? Because she was just frantic. And I wrote back and said, keep doing what you're doing because the demon has to obey the name of Jesus. So the next day, they started in on this woman again. And after two or three hours, oh, when they came in, they discovered that the 11-year-old boy had already been delivered. The demon had already left him. He wasn't as deep into it as she was. But they started working on her again, praying and reading scripture and kept using the name Jesus. And finally, it said, uh, she said that this woman's, uh, the demon came out, the final demon. Um, and I was telling uh, Rodney that we also got a letter from uh, John and Sylvia Ross when they were over in Africa. And they asked the churches and the school to pray about a territorial demon that was causing problems in Africa, where they were. And so we all did pray, and then she wrote back and said the demon had left. So demons must obey, and they must do it in the name of Jesus. And it takes people who are committed and faithful who pray. And uh, in, in some translations, it also says who pray and fast. Uh, this kind comes out only with prayer and fasting. And so if you ever are involved in something like this, make sure you pray beforehand or have people praying while you're working with this. Uh, that's how it works. One mistake this time, that could possibly mean that casting is not necessary for all demons. Right. There are all different kinds of demons. You know... Uh, Revelation says a third of the, of, the, of the stars of the sky were dragged down to earth by the, the dragon's tail. The stars are, are angels, and so he is stealing some of the angels. And some of the angels rebelled with him and went with him. And God took some of the angels that were too powerful 
and bound them in pits of darkness. I've always wondered if the black holes in space where light can't even come out, if, if God bound the demon or the big devils in there. Um, but he has, he has made it just enough so it's balanced between good and evil, and we have a choice. We have a choice every day. We have a choice with everything we do, either to choose God or not God. And you know that. You know the choice is always there. Paul says, every time I try to do good, evil is right there at hand. You know, you can always make one of the other choices. So we always have a choice. The Holy Spirit is with us in those choices. He always leads us in a submissive way to choose the good. But he never makes anybody choose the good. Okay, I want to get back to this. Uh, In the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was a Jewish day of preparation, Friday. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid him there. Apparently, they just rushed to Joseph's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, and put Jesus in there, put the spices beside him, folded the cloth up over him, and went to their homes because they were not allowed to do work on the Sabbath. And they, it was a high Sabbath, the Passover. Uh, the lamb sacrificed on the 14th of Nisan, which is the month at the beginning of the year. Uh, the, the Jewish calendar requires that they sacrifice a lamb at a certain time, and the lamb be cooked by 6 o'clock in the evening on the Sabbath, uh, on the day before the Sabbath day of preparation. And then they eat the lamb from 6 o'clock in the evening until midnight, and at midnight, if there's any left, they burn it. Uh, the lamb never has a bone broken. You know that story, right? The Passover lamb... Bones are never broken. And this is why Jesus' bones were never broken. Okay? How were they planning to get back? The tomb? Yeah. It would have had to be the Roman soldiers that were put there to guard to move the stone out of the way. And they may have taken a lot of servants with them to help with that too, the men. But the women, I don't know what they were thinking. They, they didn't know how they were going to move the, the stone. It's a good, a good question. Uh, I wanted to tell you that there is a term <coughs> for breaking the legs. It's called curry fracture. There was an article in the March 1987 Journal of the American Medical Association where three doctors examine the death of Jesus, and then they write the article on the death of Jesus. And Crury fracture, C-R-U-R-I, fracture, uh, is the technical term for the breaking of the bones right above the knee. If you feel down here on the outside of your leg, you can feel the uh, ligament that's right next to the bone. And if you push in, you can actually feel the bone. They would hit with a club right here above the knee, break the legs inward. The only way you can breathe out when you're hanging on a cross is to pull yourself up on the nails to breathe out. Because when you relax on the cross, your lungs are completely filled with air. And so Jesus, we know, spoke from the cross seven times. 
um, seven special times. If you remember, the first time he said, Father, forgive them. That's in Luke. They don't know what they're doing. And I believe that the two thieves who were crucified with him up to that point were making fun of Jesus. But then one of the thieves heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And suddenly he he repents. And he uh, upbraids the other one. He attacks the other one and says, don't do this. Uh, we deserve what we're getting, but this man is innocent. He doesn't deserve it. And so he turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus again pulled himself up on the nails and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, tremendous, amazing story. We know that when he carried the cross in the streets, he didn't carry the whole cross. If you've seen uh, Mel Gibson's uh, The Passion of, of the Christ, you saw him carrying the whole cross. That would be impossible. The stipes, which is the upright, is either lying on the ground or already in the hole where it's supposed to be. Uh, it would probably weigh three or four hundred pounds. And the cross piece called the patibulum uh, would use a mortise joint. If you look at the, maybe if you're a, a uh, cabinet maker, you'd know about a mortise joint. Uh, there's a mortise joint in the cross piece, and then there's also one in the uh, upright, the stipes. And when, when those are fit together, then they quickly wrap them. And uh, when Jesus was forced to carry the cross piece, that would weigh anywhere from 80 to 125 pounds. Uh, he fell. The scriptures indicate that he fell. Tradition says he fell three times. And the road he walked on is called Via Dolorosa. And you may have heard the song. Uh, I forget who the lady is that sings that. But uh, uh, Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. And so Jesus, it's a, it's a long way through Jerusalem. If you took the cross and went straight out to Golgotha, it wouldn't be that far. But the way of suffering was to take him in a zigzag route, so he had to carry it farther and humiliate the prisoner farther. And Jesus had already suffered another thing in the garden called hematidrosis, where the in hematidrosis, the little tiny capillaries in the pores burst open, and when a person is under great pressure, uh, whose blood pressure is very high or who is under uh, other kinds of stress, when they bow down and pray, <coughs> their, uh, their pores produce sweat, and the sweat mingles with the blood from the capillaries and falls to the ground. And Luke the doctor tells us about this, that he, he's, he uh, sweat drops of blood. And... Uh, so he'd already suffered, and according to the doctors, when you go through hematidrosis, you have suffered from exposure, and when you stop that, you're, you shake uncontrollably. And so Jesus has already gone through this. Then he was taken, after he was kissed by the betrayer, he was taken and 
beaten. And the scourge, you know, the Jews did not allow anyone to be beaten more than 39 times. 39 because the law says 40. And they always bent a fence around the law. They always, it's called the, it's called the Talmud. The word Talmud means the writing of the, of the students. And in the writing of the students, they say the law says you can travel one mile on the Sabbath, so let's make a law that you can travel only three-fourths of a mile. In other words, they're so careful not to break the law. But these Roman soldiers who beat Jesus were under no such compunction. They just beat and beat and beat. And you saw in the movie, they wore themselves out beating on him. And the Roman flagrum is like a, a small bat, maybe two feet long. This is what they used. Uh, the Roman flagrum had thick leather belts, three or four, tied to the end of this, of this bat. And uh, then at the end of each leather belt was folded in a piece of lead or a broken piece of pottery. So when they would beat something, it would stick to the flesh and pull out chunks of flesh. And when they beat Jesus, it would be like being beaten with a small ball bat maybe a hundred times from the back of his head to the back of his heels, uh, bleeding and broken open. And, and the, the doctors say it would first bruise the skin, then it would break the skin and bruise the muscle, then it would break the muscle and bruise the bone. So this beating killed most people. But Jesus lived through that. He lived through hematidrosis first, then the beating, and then he is forced to carry the cross piece. Luke alone tells us that Jesus was sent from Pilate to Herod. And Herod tried to get Jesus to do a miracle. And Luke tells us that the soldiers blindfolded Jesus and then punched him with their fists. The man in the shroud of Turin has one eye swollen shut. You know, when you're blindfolded, you can't protect yourself in any way. And Jesus just stood and took what they gave him. And he said not one word. Isaiah 53, like a lamb led to a slaughter. So he did not open his mouth. He was silent. Uh, Jesus said nothing before, Pilate, uh, before Herod. Pilate and Herod had been enemies. But after that day, Luke says, they became friends. And Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate then. And Pilate declared him not guilty. As we read here in John, you're going to see this. He declared him not guilty. If you read the earlier chapters there of the crucifixion, he declared Jesus not guilty three times. He has done nothing deserving death. He should not be punished. Three times declared not guilty. So the state did its job. Jesus was not guilty. But they still wanted him crucified. And the thing that swayed Pilate was, you're no friend of Caesar if you leave a king who, declared, who declares himself to be a king alive. And so Pilate, according only to Matthew, washes his hands and says, you take him and do what you will. And he even tried to get him to set Jesus free, remember, when they, they cried for Barabbas and said, set Barabbas free. And there's a symbol in that for us. The name Barabbas, you know the word bar, means son. And the word Abba means father. 
The sons of the Father are set free, but the Son of the Father has to die. And so Jesus, carrying His own cross, falls down, according to tradition, three times. In Jerusalem, there is the Via Dolorosa. The places are marked where supposedly He fell. And the third time, the soldiers gave up on it and forced a man named Simon to come from Cyrene and carry the cross the rest of the way out. And when they got there, they fitted into the mortise joint. They tied it together. They laid Jesus down on his lacerated back. Now, they'd already put a robe on him before Pilate, and then they'd ripped that robe off of him with all that plasma and blood coagulating, opening all the wounds again. And then they put him down on his back on this, and they took seven-inch wrought iron nails. They found only one nail from a crucifixion. People would take them, pull them out of the wood, and keep them in their wallets as good luck charms. You know, if I carry this, the Romans won't crucify me. They found one that was driven through the heel bone of a young man. He was crucified on a short cross, and since it wouldn't have kept him off the ground, they pulled his feet up next to his buttocks to crucify him. And when they drove the nail through, they went through his heel bone. And the heel bone is the second hardest bone in the body next to the skull. And uh, when they did that, it bent the nail and bent the end so sharply that they couldn't get it out of his heel bone. And so they, that's the only one they found. It's a little over seven inches long, wrought iron, three-eighths of an inch thick. And at the end, it tapers quickly to a point. So you can imagine having that driven through between the bones of the wrist, right at the base of the hand, and out the back. And you can feel the declivity there in the back of your wrist where the bones come together. And that way the body would be hanging. The nail would get right into the medial nerve, which would cause the hands to claw. And when you look in the uh, Shroud of Turin, you can actually see the clawed hands and they can actually measure where the blood dripped down his wrist and fell off before his elbow. Uh, we just have no idea the, the amazing torment and pressure he was put through. And he's hanging up there, and he speaks three times, and he's not even thinking of himself. He sees John, his apostle, the only one who had the guts to stick around, and Mary, his mother, and he says, son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. As the oldest son, his responsibility was to care for his mother. And at his death, he is giving his mother to John. Not to his brothers and sisters, because they didn't believe, but to John. I don't know all the times he spoke. Maybe you can remember. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I am thirsty. Aloy, Aloy, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You will be with me today in paradise. I thirst. Excuse me? Into your hands. That's probably the last one. He shouts, uh, it is finished. Uh, that word, tetelestai, is a word that was used to stamp on a, well, on a will, a last will and testament that says this will has been carried out. Tetelestai is what Jesus said from the cross. I have completed God's will. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
and his head fell forward against his chest. His body, his lungs completely full because he could no longer pull himself up to breathe out, filled with CO2, and his heart broken, and he dies. And so here come the soldiers, and they see these two guys hanging on both ends that uh, they're still alive. And they do curry fracture on them. They hit them right in the side of their leg, so their leg collapses inward. They can no longer lift up, so they asphyxiate lying on the cross. Then they go. To, they look at Jesus, and he looks like he's dead, but he might be playing possums. They go to the next one. They break his legs. But they were under compunction, under compulsion from the Scripture of the Old Testament that says not a bone of the righteous one's body will be broken. And they come to Jesus again. And this time they take a spear and shove it up under the right rib cage, through the lower lobe of the lung, through the pericardium, which is the sac around the heart that would be filled with, with uh, plasma, a clear liquid. And then into the heart itself, the heart was right in the middle of a beat and had died. And the left ventricle was full of blood. And when they pierced that pericardium and the sac, John says, I saw blood and water gush out his side. And then they came to take him down. In the cross, we entered the body of Christ by our faith. The Apostle Paul says, and, and John also says, you believe into Christ and you are baptized into Christ. We have an inward and an outward demonstration that we are in Christ. In Ephesians, Paul says we're in Christ 22 times. And the way we got into Christ was faith and baptism. We encountered him on the cross. When he was taken down from the cross, we were with him in his body. We had died. When he was buried in the tomb, we were buried with him in a watery grave. And when he is raised from the dead by the power of the spirit of holiness, we also are raised from the dead, Paul says, to walk in new life. If it wasn't for the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, we would have no hope. But as it is, we our future is bright. We are filled with hope. Uh, I tell Paula I, I'm a little bit afraid of dying, but I am definitely not afraid of death. I look forward to it. It'll be a welcome relief. I'm tired of this body anyway. I want a new one. I want to trade in. Okay, let's look on a little farther here in John's Gospel. This is amazing. This is after Jesus is buried. And I read this a minute ago, verse 9 of John 20. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the apostles went back to their home, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? 
They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around, and we just read this. She saw Jesus standing there and did not recognize it was Jesus. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell him, tell me where you put him, and I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she said to him, My dear master. Skip on to verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, this is Sunday now, this is the day he arose from the dead, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom Aleichem, Shalom, peace with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. There's something technical here in the text, but I've always been interested in verse 22. It's like he is giving them the Holy Spirit symbolically now. And then about 40 days later, he actually pours the Holy Spirit out on them. Now, you know that Pentecost, the word pente, is the number 50. Pentecost is 50 days from Passover. And it's that day the Holy Spirit falls. And if you remember my teaching on Genesis, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's number is 50. Five is grace. And ten, five times ten, ten is sufficient. So the Holy Spirit is sufficient grace for us. And in Genesis 1, you remember this? Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Chapter 1, if you know which letter to start with, the, the Hebrew word, in, if you look at the Hebrew text, start with the sixth word in Genesis, sixth letter in Genesis. Six is the number of man and sin. <clears throat> man is created on the sixth day. And uh, you know about 666 in Revelation. Um, if you start with the sixth letter of the Hebrew text and count every 50th letter, it spells out the Hebrew word Torah. Every 50th letter. Torah is the Hebrew word for law. Excuse me? In the first chapter. You start out with the sixth word. Six is the number of man and sin. That's what Genesis is about. And you count every 50th letter, spells out Torah. If you go to Exodus, Exodus, you start with the eighth letter. Exodus is a new beginning for the nation of Israel. Eight means new beginning. So you start with the eighth letter. You count out every 50th letter. It spells out Torah again. This, this code is hidden in Genesis, Exodus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. 
And the rabbis call it the Torah Menorah because it spells out Torah four times. And the middle one is Leviticus. When you see a menorah, the lamps always point into the center lamp, which is called the Shamash. So in Genesis and Exodus, Torah is spelled the way it's supposed to be. In Numbers and Deuteronomy, it's spelled backwards because it points into the center one. And the center one is the name Every eight letters in Leviticus 1.1 spells out Yahweh. So you have the law four times pointing in to Yahweh. Back in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The rabbis have known that code was there for thousands of years. And I just found out about ten years ago about this. Studied under a guy who had studied under rabbis. Um, a Jew whose name is Joel Young, who has become a believer in the Messiah. You know, Scripture is filled with things like this. And even the scholars, most of them, don't know this stuff. But because the Jews know it, and because I studied under a Jew, I picked up some of it. It's amazing what's there. If I had time, I'd show you Isaiah 53. Uh, the, the passage in verses 8 through 10 in Isaiah 53 in the Hebrew text. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. In other words, you've got the death, the burial, and the resurrection in three verses. And there is a code in there that spells out Yeshua Shemi. Jesus is my name. Right in those three verses. Rabbis know that's there too, but they don't, they don't want to hear it. It's Yeshua Shemi. All right, let's go back to John. I just wanted to show you one thing in verse 23. I don't want to go much longer. In verse 23, he says, and the NIV says, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. But the text actually says they have been forgiven. In other words, what Peter says or what the disciples say, if they say your sins are forgiven, that means God's already done it in heaven. So Peter is reflecting, or the disciples here are reflecting what God has already done. If you hold somebody's sins against them, their sins have already been held against them by God. So what happens on earth is a reflection of heaven. Heaven and earth, apparently the spiritual and the physical worlds uh, impact each other again and again. In prayer, if you want to read about spiritual warfare, read Daniel 10. Because Daniel prays for 21 days before an angel finally comes to him. And he says the angel comes in swift flight and stands next to him and says, Your prayer was heard when you began your prayer 21 days ago, I was dispatched to come to you at that time, but I was withstood by the prince of Persia. And I had to fight him until the archangel Michael came and freed me from him. 
And now I've come to you and I will answer your question. But when I'm through here, I must go back and fight with Michael against the prince of Persia. In other words, there's spiritual warfare going on. And Daniel's prayer, if he had prayed briefly, he would never have gotten his answer in chapter 10. Now in chapter 9, he prayed about three minutes and got an answer from an angel. But in chapter 10, it took 21 days for that angel to get free and get to him. We can win the battle in the spirit realm if we pray. And we need to pray enough. Pray the way Jesus prayed. John 17, he prays first for himself, then for those who were closest to him, and then for us. He says, I pray for all those who believe because of their word, the apostles' word. And we believe because of this. Now, Thomas, you remember, wasn't there the first appearance. He shows up on the second one. And when Thomas sees Jesus, Jesus comes up and says, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. This is unique. This is the first time anybody admitted that Jesus was God. He's called the Son of God throughout, but here he calls Jesus my God. And Jesus said, because you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Here we are. We are the fulfillment of that verse. We have not seen, but we believe. And then here's where he says he did many other miraculous signs, verse 30, in the presence of his disciples. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Now, I'm not going to go through chapter 1, but I hope you'll go home and read chapter 21. Chapter 21 is when the disciples have gone out into a boat and they fished all night long and caught nothing and they wake up and there's some guy on the seashore who has made bread and fish. I wonder where he got the fish, where he got the bread. I doubt if he went into a store to buy it. I think Jesus somehow materialized it. And he's cooking fish and he sees them out there and says, Children, have you caught any fish? They said, no, we worked all night long and caught nothing. He said, throw your nets, nets on the other side. And they did. And then when they caught such a miraculous catch of 153 fish, John said to Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter took his outer garment and wrapped it around him and jumped into the water and came in to see Jesus. And John comes in with the boat later with the rest of the fishermen and they're keeping these nets, and there's so many fish. And Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? He uses the Greek word phileia. Do you like me? Do you have affection for me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I have affection for you. And the second time he says, do you have affection for me? Uh, I'm sorry, Jesus asked him the first two times, agape. Do you agape me? Do you love me? Are you totally committed to me? Peter said, Lord, you know I like you. He used a different word. 
Second time, do you love me? I like you. The third time, Jesus said, do you even like me? And Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know I like you. He never did come up to agape. He couldn't at that point because he didn't have the Holy Spirit fully. And so they're walking away. Jesus talking to Peter and John's following the way he always did. And when they get away from everybody else, Peter said, well, what about this guy? What about John? And Jesus said, it's none of your business. Basically what he said. He said, if he remains until I come back, what's that to you? You go do what you're supposed to do. And so the rumor spread that John would never die, but John says, no, he didn't say that. He said, if he remains as long as my second coming. Uh, that's what's that to you. He, uh, you know, he didn't indicate that he was going to do that, live forever. Though there is a story about a wandering Jew, you know that, who has lived forever, who saw the crucifixion and is still wandering around in Europe. This was told as truth to children in Europe. They were all afraid of this wandering Jew. The last verse of the book says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have room for the books that would be written. You know, who knows everything about anybody? Yeah, only God. Uh, thank you so much for letting me share with you, and uh, thank you for the good food and uh, the good fellowship. I want to stop and see if you have any questions before I let you go. Or any comments? Don? Not fully. I think the Holy Spirit works on us even before we have the Holy Spirit. I think it's kind of like demons. Somebody asked me, oh, it was Mickey, I think, uh, asked me if uh, you have to invite a demon in if you want him to come in, but once you have the Holy Spirit, you can't have a demon. And that's true, but demons can still oppress you from the outside. And that does happen sometimes. And that's when our prayer life really needs to increase to keep those demons away from us. Now, what was your question, Don? The Holy Spirit. When he finally received the Holy Spirit, I mean, these guys were still afraid. They were still locked in the upper room, you know. But by the time uh, the Holy Spirit came 50 days later, all of a sudden, all fear is gone. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches that powerful sermon to the very people who crucified Jesus. And these are the people who repented and believed and were baptized. 3,000 men, plus women and children. And uh, they're meeting in, the, in Solomon's portico in the temple. The book of Acts is an incredible study. It's got four sections in it. Uh, Luke outlines it for us. It's Jews only, and then God-fearing Gentiles, and then Gentiles who don't know God. And then Rome. The gospel goes to Rome. Uh, maybe someday I'll come back and talk to you about the book of Acts. But uh, there's so much in the scripture. I hope you will go home 
and read the end, the conclusion of all the Gospels. We didn't read Matthew's ending. It's completely unique. He talks about the temple veil being split in two from top to bottom, torn in, in pieces. He talks about people coming out of their tombs at Jesus' crucifixion and people seeing their dare departed family members in Jerusalem. Uh, he talks about an earthquake, the darkness between noon and three. Matthew has unique information. And then, you know, because John knew Matthew and Luke, he doesn't write all that stuff. He writes his own story. Uh, Luke has some interesting information there, too. But I recommend you read just the, the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection and appearances in the Gospels. They are incredible. Now, you saw Mark. Mark ends with the resurrection, the empty tomb, and that's it. But he's the only one that doesn't go into more detail about afterwards. Any other questions or comments? Thank you for a wonderful weekend. I look forward to seeing you again tomorrow. I might even put a coat on tomorrow after I get into the building. <laughs> Supposedly, the high tomorrow is supposed to be 53 or something, so I'm supposed to get some rain, too. It's okay with me. You betcha. I've enjoyed it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for providing for us. Thank you for food and shelter and clothing. Thank you for each other. Thank you that your word bears fruit in our lives, that your Holy Spirit penetrates our hearts and lets the word sink in deep to change us. Father, help us to love your word, to love Jesus, and to keep us dependent on you and trusting you. In Jesus' name, amen.